Isn't it good to be in church this morning? Amen. Sweet presence of God that we feel in this place already. And I'm thankful for that. Don't take it lightly. How many has enjoyed the last few days of being in the presence of the Lord, worshiping God, and hearing from His Word? What a marvelous time we've had over the last few days. I've appreciated every message that I've heard. And uh, the Lord has truly spoken to us. Uh, the ministry of Brother Alviar on the first night, and then Brother Frazier, and uh, Brother Holmes, a uh, dear friend of ours, and I have so much appreciated what I have felt and heard and received. I have uh, definitely benefited more than I could ever be a blessing. I've been blessed in being here. I'd heard of this church and your pastor for many, many years. Uh, in fact, one of my best friends in the world is Brother Ben Weeks, and uh, I suppose he's came up here several times, and uh, he told us, he said, uh, it's one of the best churches you'll ever, ever be in. And I can truly say with the Queen of Sheba, the half was never told me. After coming here and seeing and uh, feeling what I have felt and being around your good pastor and his family, I have been blessed. I appreciate the work that God has done through the Davies family here in McMinnville. But there's something to be said for the excellence in which it has been done. Every part of this facility, from the grounds outside to coming inside this building, everything is so nice and orderly and done with excellence and has a touch of the Davies class on it. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful and inspired. It makes me want to go home and just do better. Praise the Lord. I like to be around people that make me want to do better, set the bar up a little bit higher and try a little harder. And so I appreciate them, and it's just good to be here. Now, I have felt this morning uh, maybe an old feeling come over me of an evangelist. I did that for 10 years, and sometimes I think I probably should be doing that now. <laughs> no. uh, but... Uh, it's not a strange feeling to me, so I'm going to go in a little bit different direction today. If you have your Bibles, invite your attention to 1 Kings chapter number 15. First Kings chapter number 15. Heard about some young mischievous boys that got a hold of the old pastor's Bible and glued some of the pages together, unbeknownst to him. And when he got up to read his text the next Sunday morning, he took the Bible in his hands and he read, And Noah took unto himself a wife. And he turned what he thought was one page and continued to read. And she was 50 cubits broad. 300 cubits long, pitched within and without with gopher wood. He said, folks, I've never read that in the Word of God, but he said, this goes to show you we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, I'm going to try to read it right. 1 Kings 15 and verse 9 and in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. And 41 years reigned he in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom. And, I, and Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his father, fathers had made. And also make his mother, even her, he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burned it by the brook Kidron. Turn with me, if you would, on to 2 Kings chapter 23. I have several uh, different passages of Scripture, if you'll just bear with me this morning. I would apologize, but it is the Bible. It's the Word of God. 
2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 12, and the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 15. And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into, and you've probably noticed this theme in all of our scriptures that we've read so far, the brook Kidron, the brook Kidron. One more passage of scripture, Second Chronicles 30, just one chapter over. In verse 14, and they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them, and everybody let's say it together, into the brook Kidron, and cast them into the brook Kidron. I want to preach for your consideration just for the next little while this morning the cleansing currents of Kidron. The cleansing currents of Kidron. Let's lift up our hands and our voices again to the Lord and let's pray right now that his presence, his anointing would be here in this place. Jesus, we have need of you again. We're praying, God, that you would touch our hearts and lives, move upon us, help us, God, today as we endeavor to speak forth your word. I pray, God, it find lodging place in the hearts of individuals here. We thank you for it and praise you for it. Hallelujah. Would somebody worship the Lord with me right now? Let's praise him. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for standing and you may be seated. These four passages that I read to you in your hearing this morning happened at different points and times in the history of the nation of Judah. These events took place sometimes even many years apart from one another. Yet they all represent a time in Judah of great revival. These are times when Judah was returning to serve the Lord. These were times of restoration these were times, as we would say, of national revival or spiritual renewal. Sacrifices would be reestablished unto the Lord. They were going to rediscover the law of God. They were going to once again walk in the ways that God had created for them originally. They were going to be obedient to God. They were going to live according to his precepts and principles. And they were no doubt absolutely thrilled and enthused that God was going to take them back. After many years of being backslidden and being separated from his presence. You see, Israel had been backslidden as a nation because as a nation they had once served the Lord. But many of these people, individuals that were involved, had probably never served God before because it had been such a long time since they had had a good king or leader that would teach them the truth. These kings for generations had failed to enforce the laws and the precepts of the word of God. But now, revival. Everybody say revival. 
Revival is taking place. And everybody, without exception, is excited about revival that is in the nation of Judah. People are repenting. How many knows that repentance is still a part of an old-fashioned revival? You can't have revival without repentance. I understand that there's a lot of folks that are trying to have an assembly line Pentecost, but you can't get the Holy Ghost without repenting. It is a prerequisite for you to receive anything from God is to get your heart right with God and repent of your sins. So there was repentance that was going on. People were establishing once again their relationship with God. There was worship that was taking place. How many knows that worship is a part of revival? Amen. That's our response to the presence of God and the glory of God that visits us. And how, how many can agree with me that if you want the presence of the Lord to show up, if you want the anointing of the Holy Ghost in this service, the quickest avenue to get in his presence is to lift up your voice and begin to praise him and begin to worship him, begin to glorify him. So there was worship that was taking place. There was prayer then commitments and consecration to God that was taking place. It was a high time in the nation of Judah, a time of revival. Right now, we're in a season of revival in our church, having special services, and it's always a happy time around our assembly when revival time comes. We've seen people receive the Holy Ghost. We baptize entire families in Jesus' name for the remission of their sins. We, we've seen the saints of God. God began to work in their lives. I've seen as a pastor in this revival, God began to work in couples' marriages and put families back together that had been struggling. I've seen God in this revival begin to work in such a marvelous way in our young people's lives. I'm telling you, a rising tide lifts all ships. When revival comes to a church, it should affect everybody. I said everybody should be touched by a visitation from God. When God begins to move an assembly, there's something that takes place in the heart of that church. God begins to stir them. Amen. Things are put away. Amen. Conviction comes. Our hearts, we try to make them right before God. We're so thankful for what God is doing. Aren't you thankful for an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival? Oh, somebody clap your hands and let's praise the Lord. So these occasions that we read about in the nation of Judah were happy times for them. These three passages are the record of three different revivals that happened at separate periods of time in the history of Judah. Three different kings presided over them. Asa, Josiah, and Hezekiah. Though these three revivals happened at different times and under different leadership and there were different people and players that were involved in them, can I say that these three revivals, as I begin to study them, have at least two things in common. And I think that these two things are common whenever and wherever revival, I'm talking about a real revival, takes place, whether it is in an individual, whether it's in a church, or whether it's in a constituency of people, any time revival takes place, you can rest assured that these two things are going to happen. First of all, there is some issues that arise, that come to the surface, that have to be resolved. When conviction comes. When God begins to move, it seems like he places his finger on things in our lives and issues that are in our lives that have to be resolved. You see, it had been such a long time since these people had served God that they had fallen in, in, into idolatry and idol worship. They had began to worship graven images that they had made with their own hands inanimate objects of stone or wood and they had began to worship them not only that but they had built altars and offered sacrifices 
on these altars to these false gods. And they had become so low and depraved and sinful that they actually offered their own children on those altars. They become so godless, so sinful, and they had gone so far that it seemed that not even the Lord could reach them and bring them out. Yet there could be heard the voice of a man of God as he prayed and began to read the word of God. How many knows that God begins, first of all, many times to deal with a man, amen, a preacher, a leader of God's people, and God began to deal with a man and begin to stir him up, and he began to tell the people what they needed to do to please God. But you see, these people have a problem. They have fallen into idolatry. They are worshiping idols. And as I began to look into this, I found that there was quite possibly an idol in every home in Judah. Each home had what they would call a household idol. Many Eastern religions still practice this today. Little, little idols, two or three feet tall. And they'll place them in a prominent uh, place in their home. And when they would get up in the morning, before they would do anything else, they would pay homage to these idols. They would pray and they would uh, uh, spend time worshiping these idols. These idols that were made with stone. These idols that they had used uh, out of rocks or maybe had carved out of wood that could not respond to them that could not hear them, that could not help them, that could not answer them. This is what Judah had succumbed to. This was what the people of God had fallen into, worshiping idols. Every home in Judah had an idol. And that's terrible. But if that was not bad enough, they said that they also... They also had what they called family worship sites. And what this was was a place where the extended family at particular times of the year could gather together. Aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins, extended family members could gather together and worship these idols. They were usually situated in a grove and and they would build an altar and they would offer burnt sacrifices on that altar. And these idols normally were a little bigger, a little bit more prominent and imposing. Five to six feet in stature. And the whole family would be called in. And they would make their way down maybe even for several days. And they would be there in that grove. And they would worship those idol gods that they had made. So not only did every home in Judah have an idol, but every family in Judah had what they called a family worship site where they would gather together, maybe on holidays or special occasions, and they would worship these idol gods. If that was, that was, that was terrible, that was bad, but it didn't stop there. The pollution of Israel was so great and the trespasses were so enormous that they not only had them in their homes, they not only had family worship sites, but theologians say, and we even read it here in the Word of God, that they had become so depraved that they placed these idols in the very house of God. Not in the outer court. Not just in the court of the Gentiles or not just in the outer perimeters of the house of God. But, but historically it's proven that they brought those idols into the very holy place. Into the place where the glory in the presence of God belonged. Into the place where that priest would come into the very presence of God and represent the people. But now, instead of the Shekinah glory of the Lord, instead of the presence of God, instead of the presence of Jehovah, there was an idol in its place. And that 
priest would go there and offer sacrifices. And it was even more imposing than the previous idols that we've spoke of. But it was 10 to 12 feet in stature. And it was there in the very holy place where God's presence was supposed to dwell. It had become, uh, they'd come to the place that they began to flaunt their idolatry. Yes, Judah had a terrible dilemma on their hands. Every home in Judah has an idol. Every family in Judah has a place of worship where they go at specific times of the year and offer sacrifices as an entire family unto idol gods. And not only that, they have used the very house of God for their idolatry. They have made altars unto those false gods and offered sacrifices on them where the presence of God was supposed to be, where the presence of God had originally dwelt. Now they are offering sacrifices unto false gods. And this creates a problem, as you might imagine, when revival breaks out in the land of Judah. They are faced, they are faced with things like, what do we do with the evidence of our past life? What do we do about the lifestyle that we used to live? Uh, before we came to God, before revival ever took place, before we ever felt the tug of God upon our heart to return to him. This is the way that we live. This is the lifestyle that we have. They couldn't just remove those idols in their home to a back room somewhere and cover them up or box them away because perhaps when their children would grow and uh, get a little older and become adults with curiosity. Maybe they're looking through the relics of the past uh, and they stumble on to these idols and with curiosity they begin to ask, uh, what, what was these? What, what, what do these represent? Well, what, what kind of thing is this? And, and they would have to deal with the shame and the condemnation all over again of explaining their past lifestyle and what they were before they came to God and how depraved that they were and worse than that there might be the temptation there might be the temptation for their children to want to worship those idols well after all mom and daddy used to do this can I tell you the very worst thing that you can do as a parent is to rehearse in front of your children everything you used to do in the world makes me so aggravated. Men in our church want to talk about how far they could throw a football. Our women want to talk about how they used to be on the cheerleading squad and how popular they were in school and all the sin and debauchery that they was involved in. I'm going to tell you, you don't need to rehearse that in front of your children. You need to show your children how to worship when you come to church. When you come to the house of God, they need to see a daddy that knows how to pray and touch God. They need to see a mama, amen, that's not so dignified that she can't shout every once in a while when the presence of God begins to move in the place. Yeah. Instead of talking about how much beer you used to drink and how much drugs you used to take, why don't you tell them about prayer meetings and the move of God and the revival that come to the church. Oh, let's clap our hands and praise the Lord right now. No, they, they couldn't just push it to a back corner somewhere. They couldn't just hide it away in the house somewhere. Amen. It had to be dealt with, but they were unsure as how to deal with it. How do we deal with our past life? What about those family worship sites? Do we just not go visit them again? Do we just not go out there and cut the grass anymore and just let the grass grow up and the vines grow in around those altars and, and let the brush, underbrush overtake it and, and just hope it goes away and, and nobody asks about it or nobody finds it? No, they couldn't do that because future generations may go down and somebody might start clearing the land and cutting down the brush and the vines and find those altars and more than that, those idols that were there and there might be a temptation to go back 
back and worship them or get ensnared in all of that that their parents or grandparents were involved in. They couldn't do that. And they certainly couldn't leave them in the house of God. They couldn't just cover them up. That priest couldn't go in and, and try to give sacrifice unto God and worship God and represent God before the people with those idols looming maybe in the corner or in the shadows of the room somewhere. No, it had to be dealt with. He had to, he had to eradicate it. He, he may not know how to do it or how to take care of it, but it certainly had to be dealt with. He couldn't have that, that condemning thing looming over him. Uh, about the time that he is feeling the presence of God suddenly looks over in the corner of the room and maybe they tried to cover it up with a black cloth, but it's there and he's reminded, I used to give sacrifice to that God. I used to be bound by that God. I used to be ensnared by idolatry and worship to that God. I, I cannot allow that to exist when I come into the place of worship. I've got to be free from all of that. I've got I to be severed from all of those chains. I, I can't deal with that anymore. Oh yeah. Amen. How do we deal with these things? We can't worship around it. We, we can't pretend like it don't exist. We can't sweep it under the carpet and act like it's not there. That'll create divided affections. Amen. That'll, that'll be a constant reminder of my past. That'll cause guilt and shame to be, be all over me every time I come into the presence of God. Something has to happen. There's got to be a solution to the problem. And I know we're talking about an Old Testament event, but I think everybody in this room can relate to what I'm talking about here today, what I'm preaching to you this morning. There's people in this place, you know what it is to be dogged by a dismal past. You know what it is to be condemned. You know what it is to remember that the scars on your mind of what you used to be. And every time you slip up your hands in the presence of God, you feel the devil tap you on the shoulder and say, you can't can't worship God. I know what you used to be. I know what you used to do. What you used to be involved in. Every time there's a glorious move of the Holy Ghost, amen, you, you feel so unworthy. You feel so guilty because you're reminded of everything that you used to be involved in. You look around and you see those that have been in the church all of their life and they seem so innocent and they seem so pure and you wonder, God, what it must be like to feel what they feel and not have these scars on my mind. Amen. But I'm fixed to preach to you that there is a solution to the problem. I'm fixed to tell you this morning that God's got an answer. Because when revival comes, God brings solutions with revival. When revival comes, he brings a remedy to the problem. Oh, lift up your hands and let's worship God together. Oh, yeah. Judah, Judah said, we got this dilemma. How are we going to get rid of these idols? How do we get them out of our life? How to get them out of our home? How do we get them out of our family? We, we've got to get them out of our church. We've got to get this out of our heart. So they're left to ask the question, what can we do? We just carry them down to the city dump, throw them in with the rest of the garbage when we take out the trash. No, we can't do that because we're going to have to go back to that place. And when we take out the trash next week, it might be a possibility that we see the head of that idol protruding up over that garbage heap. And all over again, we've got to relive that. We've got to deal with that. We've got that on our minds. Amen. And we've got to fall back down in that guilt and that shame. No, we'll be ridden with that all over again. We can't do that. What do we do with the evidence of our past life? The first thing that ever revival has in common is when people began to get their heart right with God, they are faced with the challenge, what do we do with what we used to be? 
I see it. I preached as an evangelist for 10 years. I would see people when I would preach about the Holy Ghost. It wasn't that they didn't want the Holy Ghost. When I'd preach about joy that was unspeakable, it wasn't that they didn't want joy. They'd been searching for joy all their life. When I'd talk about uh, forgiveness and I'd talk about the good things of God and the presence of the Lord, it wasn't that they didn't want to experience that. They wanted with all their heart to experience that. But I could see it on their countenance uh, as they're standing between the pews uh, and God is dealing with them. You could see the question mark on their face. What am I going to do with what I've been? Tell me that, preacher. What am I going to do with everything I used to be? How am I going to go back and face my friends again? How am I going to go home to a lost husband and deal with that? What am I going to tell my family? What am I going to do with the evidence of my past life? All of my faults. All of my failures. So that brings me to the second thing that all revivals have in common, and that is that there's a solution to the problem. Thank God that he doesn't leave us without a solution to the problem. And this is where the Brook Kidron comes into the picture. When you think of the Brook Kidron, sometimes when we think of a brook, we think of it as a, maybe a small little stream or shallow babbling creek, picturesque. But as I begin to look into the definition of the Brook Kidron, it tells us that at certain times it was anything but just a little babbling brook. But it was a deep, brooding, toiling, raging torrent. Amen. Amen. At certain times. Praise God. It, it looked like when I went and visited there with Brother Holmes here not too many months ago, about this time last year, matter of fact. And uh, they told us this is where the Brook Kidron is. And, and uh, I looked down, it just looked like a dry gulch, Brother uh, Davies. When we looked down there, it was just not much water running in it. And so I'm left to wonder, amen, one of the definitions is, is at certain times it could be a deep, brooding, uh, raging torrent of a waterway. But, but when I seen it, it didn't look like much. But the Bible tells me that these, these men, praise God, the men of Judah, was instructed by the Lord. He said, I want you to take a wagon, and I want you to make your way through the city streets of Judah. And I want you to stop out in front of every house. And he said, I want you to load that wagon high with all of the household idols they're in the homes of Judah. You, you pile them on. Amen. You drag them out. You get them out of the back closets. You get them out. Amen. You bring them out of the storage buildings. And this is, this is how we're going to get rid of them. This is how we're going to eradicate them from the land. You bring them out and you place them on the wagon. But don't stop there. After you've been by every household, he said, go out to those family worship sites. And he said, tear those idols down. Pile them on the wagon. Throw those altars that you built on a wagon. Amen. Uh, the Bible tells me that, that the kings of Judah had flaunted their idolatry to the place that even on the walls, the city walls, they had these idols. And on the pinnacles of their palaces, they had these idols. And he said, I want you to go, I want you to tear them down and, and bring them down and, and place them on the wagon. Amen. We're going to get rid of these things. There's revival in the land. How many knows that when revival comes, you got to deal with things? Come on, I said when revival comes, it's a time to deal with things. When God visits you, it's a time to deal with the problems of life. He said, but don't stop there. He said, pull that thing up in front of the house of God. You tell that priest, he's not going to have to deal with that every time he goes in the presence of the Lord. But he takes that idol and he tell him to drag it out of the house of God, out of the holy place, and bring it and place it on that wagon. What do we do now, God? We've taken them out of our homes. We went out to the family worship sites. We've taken them off the walls of our city. We went to the house of God and we drug them out, but they're still here. How, what do we do? He said, I want you to take them and I want you to cast them into the brook, Kidron. Now again, the brook Kidron, it doesn't look like a raging torrent. It's not much of a river. But the Bible says that it is, in fact, at certain times, a river that flows with much current. 
He said, you throw it in there. This is how you're going to get rid of them. And can you imagine them casting those idols down into that dry gulch? And they're wondering, what, what, what good is this going to do? We, we still see them. They're, they're still there. What, how are we going to deal with it? How, how, how are we going to make this thing right? How, how, how is this going to be taken care of? Amen. But he said, just cast them in there. But the Bible tells me that at certain times of the year, at certain times of the year, as the rain began to fall, you see the Brook Kidron, it ran from the northern hills. It's only 20 miles long, and it runs from the northern hills outside of Jerusalem, and it runs right by on the eastern side of the house of God and all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. Over 1,200 feet below sea level. And the descent of, of the Brook Kidron from the time it starts in the hills north of northern Jerusalem until it comes to end just 20 miles long in, into the Dead Sea, it has a descent of 3,920 feet. So when those rains begin to fall on those northern hills just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the rejoicing that must have come when they saw those thunderheads begin to build up and those clouds began, amen, to overshadow the hills just north of Jerusalem. They said, you know what? Something's happening here. God is going to cleanse us. God is going to take it away from us. God is going to eradicate it. And when that current come rushing down, down through, amen, what was this to dry gulch when they placed those idols in there, suddenly there's a current that comes by and it removes it entirely and washes it down to the lowest place, amen, to the dead sea, the lowest point on the face of the earth, into the deepest point of the dead sea, it takes it away, it eradicates it away. It washes it and it's totally gone. Amen. It run from those mountains high just outside of Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. Kind of reminds me of a song we used to sing. It flows from the highest mountains all the way to the lowest valley. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. It'll cleanse you. It'll purify you. It'll wash you. It'll change you. It'll transform your life. It may have just been a little brook sometime, but revival, when revival comes, it's a raging current that washes away the past of Israel. Kind of reminds me of another stream, Brother Davies. It begins. Yeah, its wellhead is found in Genesis. And it's just a trickle. It's just barely flowing. A man by the name of Adam sins before God. And he tries in his own attempts to cover it up. Maybe a lot like those that had fallen into this idolatry. If we'll just push it in the back room, we'll just try to cover it up ourselves. He sews some fig leaves together and makes he and his wife an apron. And God came at that appointed time in the cool of the day and says, Adam, Adam, where art thou? Isn't it interesting? He didn't say, Adam, what have you done? Adam, what about the sin you committed? He wasn't concerned as much about what he had done as where he was at because he knew to begin again, he had to start from where he was. He said, Adam, where are you? Because if, if we can start there, we can see a restorative work in your life. But Adam, those aprons, your attempts to cover up your sin, that's not going to get the job done. There's got to be blood that's shed. And animals were slayed and, and their coats were made uh, to cover them. Garments, tunics were made to cover uh, Adam and his wife. 
and, and it doesn't stop there. That's where the blood begins to flow, but it doesn't stop there. We read about in the book of Exodus as the current begins to pick up just a little bit. And the Bible tells me that literally millions uh, fled Egyptian bondage. And the way that they did this is the angel said, when I see the blood for every house, there's got to be a lamb. There's got to be a lamb that is slain and the blood's got to be placed on the doorpost and the lintel. And when, when the angel sees the blood, he'll pass over you. And the Bible says that the untold thousands and even millions of people walked out of Egyptian bondage. And I suppose one of the greatest miracles was is that there was not a feeble one among them. After 400 years of slavery and bondage and being ruled with rigor, not one of them felt the aches and the pains of the past. But they walked out of Egypt. And it builds and it grows and the current is stronger as you read through the book of Exodus with the tabernacle plaid. And there were thousands of lambs and bullocks that were sacrificed unto God. But these lambs and bullocks, all they could do was push sin ahead. If you will, all they could do was raise the debt ceiling. They couldn't eradicate it. They couldn't take it away. But the closer you get to Calvary, the closer you get to the New Testament, the stronger the current gets. No wonder John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away. Not just going to push it ahead. Not just going to roll it another year ahead. I'm going to take it away. The sins of the world. I'm telling you, the blood is powerful enough to cleanse you entirely. The blood is powerful enough to cleanse you completely. Somebody ought to stand to their feet, lift up their hands right now, and thank God for the blood. Thank God for the blood. Music come, please. For the blood to really be effective. It's got to do at least three things for me. It must deal with sin in such a way that God doesn't find me guilty of it anymore. And then it's got to remove sin so thoroughly that the devil can't get to it and condemn me with it anymore. And then third, and I suppose the greatest struggle for many is it's got to take it away from us so that we're not condemning ourselves with it every time we come into his presence. So the word of God answers those questions for me. Our sins, the Bible tells me, are hidden from God himself. Would you read Isaiah chapter number 43 and verse 25? I, even I, I, even I, am he. Am he that blotteth out that blotteth out thy transgressions thy transgressions for mine own sake for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins and will not remember thy sins I'm not even going to remember it I'm going to remove it and deal with it so thoroughly that even I can't bring it up again us, many of us, we can believe that, that God can deal with sin in such a way Jeez. and forgive it in such a way that, that he wouldn't condemn us for it anymore. But, but what about the devil? That's, he, he's, like, he's like the best tabloid editor ever. Always digging around for trash. Always coming up and saying, you remember when, 1975, when, when you did this and Always remind, every time I just get on the brink of getting a real blessing, he digs it up again. Amen. And he's like a prosecutor that wants to find me guilty of my sin. How, how are we going to deal with the devil? Micah 7 and 19. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins. Cast all, not just some, all their sin. Into the depths. Into the depths. Of the sea. Of the sea. Hallelujah. 
Mr. Prosecutor, when there's no evidence, you can't find me guilty. It's case dismissed. There's no evidence of my past life. It's in the depths of the sea. It's been buried by the blood. Somebody ought to shout about it just a little bit. Somebody ought to worship God and thank God for it just a little bit. I believe God, Brother Calhoun, can forgive me of sin, and I believe he can deal with it in such a way that the devil can't get to it. But what about me? What about me? Amen. What about the problem that I have forgetting it myself? I'll never forget preaching revival. It's probably been 15 years ago now in the Golden Triangle of Texas down in the southeast corner. And it was in a revival service, and the Lord was moving We'd had several people receive the Holy Ghost. And there was, a, there was a lady I noticed that God was dealing with her during the altar service. and In fact, she was weeping. And I gave the altar appeal and she came down to the altar. But I could notice there was some reluctance. It was like she'd get so far and couldn't break through. And finally, I made my way over to the altar where she was bowed there at the altar bench and she was praying. and She looked up at me and she said, Preacher, she said, I want the Holy Ghost like you talked about here tonight. I desperately want God. And she said, you don't understand. Something I've been dealing with for years. In self-defense, many years ago, I killed a man. And I've had that on my conscience. I've taken a human life. Do you think that God could actually forgive me? And I looked her right in the eye. And I said, ma'am, there's bigger sins than that beneath the blood. I'm telling you, God can forgive you. And he will fill you with the Holy Ghost. She lifted up her hands. And she said, God, would you forgive me? And as she began to worship God just a few minutes later, she began to speak in a heavenly language. God filled her with the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you, God can deal with sin in such a way that you don't have to be incarcerated by it no more. You don't have to be condemned by it no more. Psalms 103, verse 11. The heaven is high above. As the heaven is high. He's, he's putting some measurements out here. As the heaven is high above the earth. Yes. So great, so great is His mercy. I'm trying to measure my mercy, but I oh, can't even I can't even find hallelujah. proper measurements for it. as high as the heavens is from the earth. So great is His mercy. So great. We're not talking about weak mercy. We're not talking oh, about anemic mercy. We're not talking about something that's insufficient. We're talking about great mercy. Great mercy toward them that fear Him. For them that fear Him. Keep reading. As far as the east is as from the west. As far as the east is from the west. From the west. Anybody know how far that is? Mm. I've heard of the North Pole. I've heard of the South Pole. But I've never heard of an East or a West Pole. Yeah. It, it is, is it from McMinnville? From, as far as the east is from the west? Is it from McMinnville to the coast of Oregon? No, you could drive to it. Is it from, is it from Portland to Hawaii? Far as the east is from the west? Is it from Miami to LA? No, you could get to where it was. He said, as far as the east is from the west. What did he say? So far. So far. Hath he removed. Hath he removed. Our transgressions. Our transgressions. From us. From us. They ought to make somebody want to shout a little bit here this morning. Come on, you've been beating yourself up. You've been dogging yourself. You've been ridden with guilt. God's trying to tell you this morning that his blood is powerful enough. His mercy is great enough. From the east to the west. That's how far I'll separate you from it. I'll bury it where it can never be dug up again. 
I just wonder here this morning, conclusion of this service, if there's somebody that's here, there's some things that you'd like to tear down in your life. Maybe some things you'd like to tuck under your arm and drag down to this altar. You see, when they brought that and threw it into the brook Kidron, they were going as far as they could go with it. God, we've done what you commanded us to do. But it's up to you. I can't carry this any further. I can't do anything more with it. It's up to you. You got to deal with this. You got to send a current. You got to send a rain. And you got to wash this out of my life. I can't keep dealing with this. Come on. It's just the same. If somebody will step out where you are and make your way to this altar this morning and take it as far as you can go with it, bring it to an altar, I promise you there's a current, there's a blood flow in this house that'll wash it, that'll cleanse it. That'll take it away. Oh, come on. No longer do I have to stand in the presence of God and deal with this. Feel like I can't overcome it anymore. Oh, yes. Come on, pray, church. Yeah.